Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Geography. I'm your host, Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. Climate change has been very much in the news during 2016. This year will most likely be the hottest year on record. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Geography. I'm your host, Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. Climate change has been very much in the news during 2016. This year will most likely be the hottest year on record. Extreme drought and searing heat have fanned wildfires in Fort McMurray, Alberta last May and in Gatlinburg, Tennessee this November. Meanwhile, the Arctic has also had record high temperatures, leading one climate researcher to say that the region itself is unraveling. Yet for the most part, these climate-related events and dire warnings from climatologists have fallen on deaf ears, especially in the United States, where climate change denial is firmly entrenched, especially among Republican lawmakers. But why is that? In his recent book, Behind the Curve, Science and the Politics of Global Warming, Josh Howe seeks to answer this question. How a historian at Reed College traces the history of climate change from a scientific oddity in the late 1950s to a topic of heated debate among politicians and environmental activists who feared the failure to address global warming will lead to stronger storms, fiercer wildfires, and rising seas. Part history of science and part history of environmentalism, Behind the Curve is a provocative book exploring one of the most vexing issues of our time. So, Josh, welcome to New Books in Geography. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Yeah. Your book is called Behind the Curve, and the curve being a reference to the Keeling Curve. So what is the Keeling Curve, and why did this graph become an icon in the history of global warming? The Keeling Curve is uh, it's an icon in part because of its simplicity. It's a simple plot of uh, CO2 as measured over time um, in the atmosphere at Mauna Loa, the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii and at research stations around the globe. What's powerful about this uh, this curve is that you don't actually need to know a whole lot to realize that it is a, a key marker of climate change. There's sort of three very simple things you need to know. One, you need to know that CO2 acts to warm the, the Earth uh, by absorbing energy from the sun. Two, you need to know uh, that CO2 is rising. And three, you need to know that humans are causing that rise. And so yes. those are insights uh, from science that are actually well-established and have been established for uh, more than half a century. That, that first insight that CO2 uh, causes the Earth to warm or that I guess, CO2 traps energy is derived from the insights of a scientist named John Tyndall, who between 1859 and 1862 did a series of experiments um, using an instrument called a ratio photospectrometer to measure the opacity of, uh, of gases. It found that CO2, in fact, helps to regulate the temperature of the Earth. The second is an insight from 1896, uh, when the Swedish divorcee named Svante Arrhenius, going through a kind of a horrible custody battle, um, decided to take out his, uh, his frustrations on the, 
mathematical calculations and calculated that a doubling of CO2 would increase the temperature of the Earth by around uh, 5 degrees Celsius. And he's just a little bit outside the top of the IPCC range for a doubling of CO2, but actually remarkably close. Yeah, that's amazing how accurate he was, given how the, the how primitive his um, calculations in some ways, his ability to make these calculations were, but how, well, yet very accurate in the end. Scientists, of course, will, will tell you that he came to a good conclusion for the wrong reason. Uh, it is yes. somewhat remarkable, however, how close he was. Yeah. Um, and then the last insight, uh, it's actually, it's one of the most important ones because I think um, there's a lot of skepticism, even if people accept the reality of climate change, the skepticism over um, humans' role in that change. And that was the insight that humans are, in fact, increasing the CO2 in the atmosphere. It's derived from uh, the studies of a, of a radio geochemist named Hans Seuss in the 1950s who realized that the CO2 that's in the atmosphere now is irradiated with uh, with what well, has carbon-14 in it. Um, and there should be a certain ratio of carbon-14, so irradiated carbon to sort of normal carbon or carbon-12. But when you measure that, what you find is there's way more carbon-12 than there should be, um, yes. given just what's out there in the atmosphere. And the source for that has got to be some carbon that hasn't been irradiated and in which the, the irradiated carbon has decayed. The mm-hmm. only reasonable source for that uh, is fossil fuel carbon. Um, yes. And so that ratio tells us that humans contribute uh, carbon to the atmosphere. So the curve, what the curve shows you in aggregate is that secular increase of CO2 over time from about 315 parts per million when Keeling first started measuring to just over 400 parts per million, which is where we are now. The other thing that's interesting about this curve is once you get into it, you realize it's actually it's not one curve, but it's two. There's a an oscillating line, so a line yes. that's sort of wave, wavy that goes, uh, if you're looking at the plot, from left to right, uh, bottom to top. Mm-hmm. Um, the oscillations are annual fluctuations of carbon, where in the spring and summer months, carbon mm-hmm. overall across the globe decreases in the atmosphere because it's taken up by the stems and shoots of uh, the plants in the northern hemisphere. And in the fall and winter, carbon increases uh, because plants drop those leaves and shoots. Most of the plants are in the, uh, the northern hemisphere. Um, so you have that, that fluctuation. And that's a natural cycle, right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to see. This is like a cycle of nature. But when you look at that oscillating curve in aggregate, you see that uh, mapped onto that annual cycle of variation is a secular cycle, uh, sort of yes. multi-decadal, where that natural cycle has been turned on its side. So the power here is, uh, is that the curve capitalizes on what we think about nature as stable um, yes. and shows how humans have turned that stability, uh, kind of tilted it on its side and created something new. One of the things, uh, kind of moving on a little bit, is kind of the context in which uh, Charles Keeling starts uh, taking these me- measurements and his uh, connection to a very well-known climate scientist named Roger Revell. One of the interesting things I got from the book is that climate science, at least in the United States, is very much a child of the Cold War. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How is what's the connection between climate science at that time and the Cold War? Yeah, I mean, it's so it, it happens in a couple of senses. Um, and I think the first thing to understand is the the importance of integrating climate change into a Cold War research program. Yeah. Um, and for me, there's no better character than Roger Revell to to be an emblem of this. And there's a couple of images of him that really tell the story. 
um, for the first, and this one is in the book, you see Ravel on the back of the, of this ship in the 1930s. It's EW scripts. It's the scripts institutes, the oceanographic vessel. And he looks, I mean, he looks for all the world like James Dean, you know, he's got this, yeah, this black I, overcoat on. Yeah. And his hair is all tousled and he's, he's like thin and he's, he's standing over these, uh, specimens that he's gathering. He's clearly doing science. The way the picture looks, he's he is a human, just far too big for the little science that he's doing. Yes, um, which is kind of emblematic of of the way he was as a character in life, because he was a very good um, science entrepreneur, and he helped mm-hmm. integrate climate science, which he was interested in, in particular C, particularly CO two monitoring, into um, a number of different avenues of research that were funded through um, through the Cold War and the National Science Foundation. The second image is of him. Uh, about 25 years later, and he's st- and this one's not in the book. He's standing uh, next to these secretaries of various agencies, and he's much plumper and has less hair, and is wearing <laughs> a tie a tie that's too short, and is clearly sort of uh, he's obsequious to these people who are controlling this funding. Yes, and so there's yes. this there's this kind of two sides to the coin of how climate science becomes part of the Cold War. On the one hand. Um, the Cold War interest in geophysical systems as part of competition with the Soviet Union enables climate scientists to take advantage of all this infrastructure across um, both the U.S. and the world, and particularly to tap into something called the International Geophysical Year that occurred for 18 months between 1957 and 1958 um, in order to conduct their science. And that's yes. great, and they love it, and they need that in order to access um, this global space. At the same time, however, they're really worried about becoming tools of what Eisenhower is later going to call the military-industrial complex. Yes, um, and much absolutely. of what they're studying is born of the same kinds of anxiety that Americans more broadly have of nuclear energy and, and nuclear conflict. So when they start worrying about the impacts of CO2 once they begin studying it, that's part of the same Cold War moment that enables them to study that phenomenon in the first place. Well, one of the things I find interesting is that um, is that environmentalism starts emerging in the 60s and 70s. And part of the reason environmentalism emerges when it did is because of concerns about nuclear weapons and nuclear fallout. Uh, but at least initially, environmentalists didn't focus much on the threat of climate change. And my sense from reading your book is that the climate scientists regarded environmentalists a bit warily. So you can talk more a little bit about this relationship between the growing... Uh, environmental movement and climate science at the time? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's important to understand when we write about scientists uh, as scholars of science studies and historians, often we'll, we will caricature them, right? We'll, we'll create these categories. And each individual scientist has their own story and is generally going to work every day to do their job and not necessarily thinking about these things. But as a group, I think scientists in general and climate scientists in particular um, espouse a certain level of conservatism when it comes to advocacy. There's a, a sort of professional code among climate scientists that I saw almost throughout the research um, until really up, in, uh, up until the, the most recent political conversations um, of backing off of the kinds of advocacy, particularly radical advocacy, that um, characterized environmental groups in the 1960s. And so I think the anxieties that climate scientists had about the impacts of CO2 in the 60s and 70s um, mirror the anxieties that people like Rachel Carson um, and and even like um, 
you know, other scientists like a, a, a Barry Commoner or a Paul Ehrlich have about environmental issues, um, climate scientists back off of those in part because they derive their authority from their dispassionate approach to, uh, to politics. And yes. they, they are interested in advocating for more and better science, but not for being tagged as some sort of political radical. At the same time, in order to be politically radical, in order to, uh, to make change in the world, environmentalists need issues to resonate locally. So Rachel Carson's Silent Spring is so resonant in part because it talks about everybody's backyard. Absolutely. Uh, climate change doesn't really fit that rubric in the 1960s. It's still very abstract and, and very technical. In order to understand it, um, you essentially need to, in the 60s, be a scientist. There's not a lot of people communicating this very well yet. Um, mm-hmm. So the environmental community, they have much closer to home issues and sort of uh, more low-lying fruit to pick than this abstract issue of climate change. And that happens well up into the 1980s. There's this great memo from the head of the Sierra Club that defines the environmental yeah, issues of the Sierra Club to detective. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it almost defines exactly what climate change is not in terms of being tangible, in terms of being accessible to the public. So it's it's very much a, uh, I'm going to turn the, the stereo on behind me. Uh, I hope that doesn't. No, I can't. I don't through. hear anything right now. So okay, we'll all keep right, going. Great. Anyway, the, the, uh, sorry for that technical blip. Um, <laughs> so the, the environmental community is kind of uh, separated, not just by the predisposition toward objectivity of scientists, but also the local focus of environmental groups, particularly in the 1960s and 70s. Okay. Uh, well, first on the side, your audio is still fine. Uh, but I want to, I want to, I want to connect this to, so you, you talk about, uh, kind of the, a little bit of the wariness of, of climate scientists and they're, they're striving to remain objective or to be seen as objective. But they do work with some policymakers. And I, if, if I understand you correctly, you call this sort of a science first discourse. But that the science first discourse over time, it kind of limits this, their, uh, effectiveness in the policy realm. So can you tell me a little bit about what you mean by this science first uh, discourse? Sure. I mean, I think what you see, um, particularly in the 1970s, as scientists become more and more concerned about the impacts of CO2 induced climate change, um, is a move to use organizations like the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences um, to promote not just more research, but a better interface between scientific research and policymaking. But there's an assumption here that more and better science in the right hands, the right political hands, will lead to good decision-making. And it, it is a, an assumption that is uh, that ignores a political process. So Absolutely. when I'm looking through the records of the AAAS, for example, I see um, the science advisor for, uh, for a congressman from California who sums it up as something called the forcing function of knowledge. He's convinced that um, more and better science placed in policymakers' hands will make for good policy. And in fact, for a while, that actually seems to work relatively well. You have the uh, National Climate Policy Act, of, I think it's 1978. Um, you have an increasing national profile of climatic issues. Um, and, and you get it from a bunch of different sectors. I mean, agriculture really wants more information about uh, climate change. I think environmentalists begin to be interested in the problem in the late 1970s. Um, and so it's, it's this kind of public service rooted in science. Um, but 
it relies largely on um, executive agencies, and there's no real legislation behind it. So what happens is that the the science first um, approach, which is in some ways top down, it ignores the populace, it ignores um, it ignores democracy more or less. It's technocratic. Yeah. It's vulnerable to political change, and that political change comes uh, in in just crystal clear focus in the person of Ronald Reagan. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about what happens during the 1980s, which is often seen as a terrible time for American environmentalists, but it's also a challenging time for climate scientists, too. Well, what happens in the early 1980s is that the Reagan administration uh, nominates a series of of, of appointees for uh, executive agencies, including the EPA, the Department of Energy, um, and, and elsewhere, the Department of Interior, and through those proxies, um, the administration cuts funding for just about all social science and environmental science research across the federal budget. So um, the, the example that, is, that stands out to me is the Solar uh, Energy Research Institute, which is now the National Renewable Energy Lab in Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. It's brand new. It's, uh, it's headed by this guy, Dennis Hayes, who is an interesting character who comes up a bunch of different times, different circumstances in the book, and was... One of my favorite interviews talking to him um, because he had so much insight into the different periods of, uh, of environmentalism. He takes over this thing called the Solar uh, Energy Research Institute in Boulder um, mm-hmm. under Carter. And everyone's really excited about this research. Literally within a year of, uh, of Reagan taking office, um, having hired away scientists from universities uh, tenured scientists, senior scientists from universities across the country. Um, They slashed the budget of the Solar Energy Research Institute by more than 70%, and these scientists get essentially two weeks' notice. And you see this happening across the the spectrum of the environmental sciences, and climate scientists get hit by this pretty hard. NCAR sees a a restriction of the kinds of things that they are funded for. Um, This is the National Center for Atmospheric Research um, in the 1980s. What's really interesting about this for me is that politically, this actually creates commonality between environmentalists and climate scientists in a new way that leads them to work together. And they work together through a couple of what are called Atari Democrats. So these these few Democrats who are technologically savvy and environmentally concerned who come to power in the middle of the 1980s. Would Al Gore be one of those? He is is the prototypical um, Atari Democrat at this time. And as a historian, you have to remember that Al Gore is not yet Al Gore in yes, the 1980s. Yes. He's not yes. the Al Gore, the former future president of the United States. Um, mm-hmm. That hasn't happened yet. He's very dynamic and uh, lesser known, but increasingly um, influential in in congressional politics because he's, I mean, frankly, he's really smart um, and he's really savvy about upcoming issues in the 1980s. So what happens with these cuts is that Reagan essentially drives these different these disparate groups who have been wary of each other together, um, and and they work more or less outside the channels of government to begin um, this kind of moment of uh, political engagement for for climate science that looks very hopeful, um, even though they're kind of working uh, again against the the dominant. Um, political discourse at the so, time. So if I understand you correctly, what's happening uh, during the 1980s is that climate scientists in the U.S. are increasingly tying their fate to American environmentalists, and particularly the Democratic Party um, during this time. Is that correct? I think that's right. And and 
I think that happens in large part as a reaction to uh, what Samuel Hayes has called the Reagan anti-environmental revolution. Mm-hmm. You actually see a lot of old school Republican environmentalists switch parties too. Um, and it polarizes that group uh, significantly. It also coincides with this moment in um, more insularly in the history of climate science um, focused on the debate over something called nuclear winter. So um, mm-hmm. part of what happens when Reagan cuts social and environmental science research budgets is science, uh, climate scientists begin looking for new problems that engage with different sources of funding. And so one of those problems ends up being the climatic impacts of a potential nuclear exchange, which they get funding for through the Department of Defense. And led in part by Carl Sagan, but also by Steve Schneider, um, these scientists realized that the smoke and ash and dust from a nuclear exchange creates unprecedented climatic conditions that could lead to a substantial cooling of uh, of the Earth, sufficient to impact agriculture and be really problematic in the, the scenario nuclear winter. Unfortunately, within that scientific community, there's some pretty bitter debate over the nature and extent of nuclear winter. And what it really is is a proxy for a debate about what scientists' roles are as advocates. Um, whereas Sagan wants to, to push the extreme scenario uh, because he's really concerned about nuclear policy. Um, some other scientists who agree with him in the main create um, political problems for, for Sagan and others by kind of toning down the scenario studies that, um, that Sagan is promoting as drivers of policy. And, and they, that whole group on, I would say generally the left um, also comes into bitter contact with um I would say more hawkish uh, scientists, largely from astrophysics, um, who are supported by institutes on the right, and it creates a division within climate science that that polarizes it in a new way. Um, so, at the, the very moment that I think climate scientists are becoming more politically savvy um, with their engagement with environmental organizations, they're also creating a, a heavily polarized climate within their own community um, that becomes a problem later. Well, that's very helpful, and I want to come back to this. Uh, question of uh, scientists as as advocates, particularly in more more recent years. Uh, I know you have to go in about ten or fifteen minutes, but uh, some other things that you discuss in the book, just to let listeners know, you you have some really excellent chapters that talk about the development of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, better known as the IPCC, in 1988, which later on in 2007 was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize along with. Uh, uh, Al Gore, and then you also talk about the the Rio summit and the development of sustainable development. Uh, in many ways, the main part of your book ends in the mid 1990s, but climate science has continued to evolve, as has the debate over how best to deal with global warming. So, um, how have the main themes of your stories uh, of your story continued to the present? Have they continued to the present, or have there been significant changes? Well, I think some of the the um, the main themes, and particularly the the science first approach to climate change policy, has persisted, um, but it's it hasn't persisted unchanged. So, mm-hmm. one of the examples that I bring up in the epilogue of the book that will lead me into sort of more contemporary things is the, the Massachusetts versus EPA um, Supreme Court case between 2003 and 2007. Um, and initially, this looks like something very different, right? This is putting um, 
regulation of CO2 into the hands of the courts. Um, and it's led by environmental groups and by politicians and scientists as sort of backup. Um, once you read the case, however, what you realize is that the decision here is really a decision that puts the ball back into scientists' court um, by allowing the EPA to regulate CO2 based on the best available science. And the language is actually pretty vague um, about what the best available science is. It more or less just lets the legal community double down on the scientist must lead the way idea. It's not a bad decision necessarily. And I don't think it's necessarily even a bad way to make some good climate change policy, but it didn't necessarily change the game in the way that I think the, um, the plaintiffs in the suit had hoped it would. It didn't create um, the framework for a, a large um, national climate change policy um, that's comprehensive in any way. It was relatively narrow. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are some more mundane things that have, have totally changed the game. And I think these are actually really important considering the current political situation. The first of these is the development of climate action plans in cities and states across uh, the nation. These are um, comprehensive, um, democratically created plans with always in consultation with scientists and policymakers um, that map out how local communities and, uh, and states and sometimes regions are going to mitigate climate change and adapt to climate change in the future. And this is a different kind of political engagement that, that actually, when I wrote the book, made me um, really hopeful. Um, I think now it's, it's the kind of last best hope um, in some ways, because I was hopeful that these would pave the way for national level policy. Yes. Now I'm kind of hopeful that um, the states and municipalities will stick to their guns, and this will be a form of resistance to what is a an erosion of national policy. So I think that has changed. I think the other thing that has changed is the attacks on scientists since about 2009. And this I didn't write about in the book, um, but I but I've been following. Um, have been increasingly personal and increasingly vitriolic um, yes. in ways that I think have really demoralized the scientific community and led many scientists to uh, back off from certain types of climate change research for fear of isolation both within their institutions and from sources of funding. So in a, a more confidential conversation with the University of Chicago climate scientist, um, I learned that she and many of her colleagues um, have eliminated some of the language of climate change from their proposals for fear of um, raising red flags in um, either the National Science Foundation or the Department of Defense or from other funding sources, particularly in the case of um, of a change of leadership in, in executive agencies. Yeah, um, I've, heard, I've so, heard of things such as this, yeah. To me, there's a really pernicious trend that further erodes um, – I guess the potential efficacy of a science first approach. And that is that scientists are being dissuaded from taking it um, and making that interface happen. Uh, These are some of the the changes that I see. Well, let me talk a little bit more about climate scientists and and some more recent trends. Uh, What do you make of the heightened advocacy of some climate scientists, such as James Hansen, Michael Mann, and Catherine Hayhoe? All of them in various ways have become, I would say, public intellectuals and ally themselves with various environmental activists, perhaps none more so than James Hansen, who, as you probably know, has been arrested many times at environmental protests and acts of civil disobedience. 
So do you see their actions as a real major departure from the rhetoric and actions of climate scientists in the past? I do. I mean, I see this is one of the things that I think is, uh, is well, let me say, I think it's a, a very intellectually and morally honest move for these scientists who have tried earnestly to work through the scientific community um, to highlight the dangers of climate change and found themselves undercut at every turn um, by a very politically oriented opposition to turn to politics themselves and, and go ahead and honestly say, okay, I'm not just about the science. I'm also about affecting change because I believe in this. Um, the change that is, I'm convinced by the evidence of, of climate change. And so I, I think, you know, Hansen's move, I'm, I'm not particularly drawn to Hansen as a, a leader, uh, as an advocate. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I have a lot of respect for his honesty in, um, retiring from NASA and, and making himself an overt advocate. And in some ways, I wish that it was politically viable for more scientists to do that. Unfortunately, I think with the current funding structure, um, there's a lot of disincentive to, uh, to be both a scientist and an advocate. Yes, yes. Well, a, a few final questions. Uh, we're recording this podcast in December 2016, and we're still very much in the shadow of the momentous presidential election last month. And as you well know, Trump has called climate change a hoax perpetuated by the Chinese, and he has appointed climate change deniers to key positions in his administration. And last week, a few dozen scientists at the annual uh, American Geophysical Union conference staged a protest against Trump's position on, on climate change. And so it seems in many ways we're preparing to see a repeat of the Reagan anti-environmental revolution of the 1980s. So in the face of this sort of obstruction, what can climate activists or climate scientists do? This is a good question. I guess I would preface my answer with a, a clarification about the comparison to Reagan. I've been hearing this a lot. Um, the comparison to, to Reagan um, is invidious for two reasons. Uh, one, I think that it softens the, the extent to which Reagan's policies in his first four years were a, a just total disaster for the American environment in a number of ways, particularly involving public lands um, and also the people who inhabited it. Because we always say, oh, well, we got through Reagan, we can get through this. So I think it does a disservice to just how destructive the Reagan administration was. Secondly, I think it, it is a disservice to Reagan, uh, the Reagan administration, because the appointments that, that the president-elect has made appear, at least on the surface, to be so much less qualified um, than the Reagan appointees and the, the potential impacts so much more dire. Um, I'm incredibly worried about... Um, about the environmental impacts of a Trump presidency. Um, and particularly, you know, climate change is one of those things that I'm worried about. I'm also as worried about uh, public lands and the, the link between public lands and climate change is an important one where public lands provide um, a, a buffer uh, for both species and humans against many of the impacts of climate change that the Trump administration has already suggested that they're going to begin to erode. In the face of this kind of policy, um, I think there are a couple of things that I see already happening um, that are really positive. The first is that cities and states, uh, in the same way that they're becoming sanctuaries for immigrants in opposition to the president-elect's immigration policies, are essentially preparing to defy uh, federal um, 
policy on climate change by, by sticking to their climate action plans and, and doubling down on the things they're already doing. And so I think that's a good thing. The other thing that I think both scientists and the interested public needs to do um, is in there, and I think there is a, a real outrage over this election, in their outrage, I think focusing on the mundane policies that come down through um, both the executive and through Congress and, and being vigilant about those um, in in the press and also uh, sort of on social media is really important because it's easy through an outrage to lose sight of uh, to lose sight of those mundane but very important details of policy. Well, that's all really helpful, and uh, I could continue talking about this all day, but I know you need to go. So, But before we leave, I want to uh, ask you a little bit about what you're working on now, and then also about you have a new book coming out that's an edited collection of, of primary documents about the history of climate change, correct? Correct. Yeah, Making Climate Change History comes out in April of 2017 with the University of Washington Press. Um, and it's a, it's a collection of... Um, primary source documents from the from the research that I did for Behind the Curve um, with some additions um, based on some great feedback that I, that I received from you and from some others um, with S's that front those um, collected uh, sources, helping to provide context for the sources, but also providing a guide for how to do this kind of history. Um, and so it's as much about doing history as it is about climate change. Um, I think there's some, some good excitement for it, so I'm, I'm excited to see it in print uh, coming up in 2017. Yeah, I'm excited to see it, too. So, uh, well, uh, why don't we bring this conversation to a close, Josh? I really uh, appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk about this. And certainly with the election and climate change front and center in, in the news, I think your book is more important than ever. So thank you. Thanks a lot for having me, Bob. It's always good to talk to you.